and from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. My co-host today, as usual, is Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Today, we're talking with our guests about homelessness and housing affordability in the Bloomington and Monroe County areas. You can join us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. You can also follow us um, on news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send us questions there. And if you do so, the people that will answer them are our four guests today. Forrest Gilmore is Executive Director of Beacon Incorporated. Mary Morgan is Housing Security Director for United Way of Monroe County. Emily Pike is Executive Director of New Hope Family Shelter. We hope to be joined later in the program by Kelsey Shields, Director of Operations for Robin and Trisha's House. So again, if you want to uh, contact us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, I know Forrest, we've had conversations about homelessness for many years now in various capacities. And I, I just want to gauge where you are right now, heading into 2022. Do we make any progress in 2021? And, and what are your thoughts about what's ahead this year? Yeah, thanks, Bob. It's good to be with you. I just am uh, celebrating 12 years uh, with the organization next week. So it has been around here. We've been going through and I appreciate uh, our ongoing conversations through the years. Um, there, I, I, I think there's good and bad. I think one of the things that, you know, I've seen in those 12 years is that we are way, way better as, an, as a community at helping people find housing, move into housing and, and succeed in, in that way. But one of the biggest challenges I've seen that continues to get worse all over those 12 years and continues is that the availability of housing that's even affordable is declining rapidly. We're losing more and more housing all the time. And that's the biggest challenge in, in dealing with homelessness is finding that um, available and accessible housing for people uh, experiencing generally extreme poverty, which is the folks we work with are generally in extreme poverty. So that's, that's the biggest challenge uh, in front of us. I, I think we also have seen uh, a real issue um, going back to about 2016, 2017 with a, with a pretty substantial change in um, substance use disorder and the uh, kind of the advent of, of synthetics, particularly fentanyl um, and meth, uh, fentanyl creating um, a, a, you know, an uptick in overdoses and the deaths that can come from that. And meth uh, um, creating a lot of challenges with um, kind of mental health issues and behavioral issues um, uh, and just neurological challenges. And so that's all in keeping with, with COVID uh, going on and just kind of the overlay of all of that. So there's a lot. I, I do think, again, we, we continue to do really well uh, and get better and better at our work, but the challenges seem to get more and more uh, every year. I am excited about um, the heading home plan and, and Mary, uh, you know, may want to tell you more about that, but uh, I think that is a really good advent to see how the community is moving together um, and uh, moving forward in that way to, to, to help us do better. Sure, we'll spend quite a bit of time on that plan, I hope to, during the, the next uh, 45 minutes or so, 50 minutes. Mary Morgan, you've been with us before as the Advocacy Director for the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, and you have switched jobs, so can you tell us uh, what your mission is and your new job as housing security director for United Way of Monroe County. Uh, thanks, Bob, and, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, yeah, yesterday was my one month anniversary in this new role, and I will say that um, it's it's both daunting and um, invigorating uh, to to learn more about what's already happening in the community, and really to be part of a very broad um, collaboration that uh, the community has made and, and backed up with some financial commitments. Um, basically the past year, uh, the United Way and 
the Community Foundation of Wilmington and Murrow County convened a, a broad swath of the community to update the Heading Home Plan. Um, there were some really good bones in that that um, the South Central Housing Network had, had done in 2014, but um, really spent a lot of time. And, and I was part of um, this year-long effort to look at what has happened since then, um, what needs to be done, and um, put together a very uh, strong strategic plan for moving us forward. Uh, and, and, and importantly, the community is back that with some resources. Um, I am the first hire to uh, start implementing the plan. Uh, the city and county have both put in substantial funding uh, to support it in the next few years, as has uh, Bloomington Township, and, and um, we're hoping to grow that as well. So yeah, it's an exciting time and um, a, a, a really important challenge that, that we're all working together to help. Well, I wish, you, I wish you well and good luck with this. I, you know, I, I know there have been lots of plans and, and some of them have, have um, been successful. Some of them haven't. I think it's you know, really important that somebody is sort of responsible. And that's a, that's a big responsibility you've taken on. So I appreciate the challenges that you have. Emily Pike is with us. And Emily, I'm sorry I, I mis, uh, misused the name. Actually, New Hope Family Shelter is now New Hope for Families. And you've been doing a lot. I mean, New Hope for Families has construction going on. I just read the story about your partnership with uh, Secretly Canadian. Um, can you explain what your organization is, why the name change, and uh, how, how optimistic are you for 2022? Hey, Bob. Thanks so much for having us here. Uh, yeah, we are New Hope for Families. We changed that a few years back when we expanded our services to be more than just shelter. But don't worry about it. People people still use the old name all the time. Uh, so at New Hope, we serve families impacted by homelessness. And we do that really in two flagship programs. The first is that we offer shelter to families as they self-define. So what that means for us is that we would never ask a family to separate in order to receive a vital service like shelter. So we would serve single moms, single dads, married couples, unmarried couples, same-sex couples, non-binary or transgender parents, custodial grandparents, about any kind of family you can think of, as long as they're taking care of at least one child and they're experiencing homelessness. And then our other program is that we offer child care and education to children impacted by homelessness in a mixed income cohort. And those two things might not initially seem like they go together, but we understand that, in fact, in our community and across the country, a tremendous portion of people impacted by homelessness are children. And in our community, that's something usually between 25 and 30 percent of our population. So it is, it is a big number, and we understand that when it comes to family homelessness, uh, a lack of access to child care can be a catalyzing event for an episode of homelessness. So at New Hope, we're committed to serving those families, helping them move through homelessness and into lasting stability. So as you said, we're in the process of moving and expanding. we got a big building project going on. Uh, we have been operating 10 years uh, 10 and a half years now. So uh, we, are, we are less new than we used to be, but still not as, not as old as some of the other agencies who've been doing this work for a long time. Uh, right now we can serve seven families at a time uh, and 16 children in early childhood education. Uh, so this expansion will allow us to increase our shelter capacity by 70% and increase our early childhood capacity by 200%. So we'll be able to serve 12 families at a time in our shelter and uh, 48 young children. So that, that feels really exciting to us. We're really looking forward to being able to, to more fully meet our community's need for both of those things. Sounds like you're doing a lot of great work. Uh, I want to go back to um, the overall plan, the heading home plan that um, Mary has the, the responsibility of helping to, to guide. I know all of you are going to be working hard on this plan. I reviewed the plan uh, this morning again in, in anticipation of the show. It's a long, uh, it's, a, it's a very detailed plan with a lot of information in it. Um, 
And I wanted you to talk about, if you would, Mary, you know, some of the the different parts of it. You talk about um, the idea that, you know, you want to be able to to be um, very quick in helping get people uh, some housing. I know for us, we've talked before about the housing first model. How are you going to go about doing that? What are some of the plans that you have in trying to to provide housing first and getting people into a stable place? Um, yeah, well, uh, I think we need more housing units, <laughs> first of all. And uh, that's not a, a you know an overnight thing that this community can do, but that is one of the things that we need to constantly um, be beating the drum for. We just need more units um, that are accessible um, to people who don't have many resources. And it's not uh, just building units. It's working with landlords to um, create incentives um, to really help people access those apartments. There is a effort underway right now. The city of Bloomington, the Bloomington Housing Authority is working to um, create a landlord risk mitigation fund, which will decrease financial risks that landlords might incur. That's one strategy that we hope to broaden. Um, as you mentioned, the plan is very detailed and, and really um, each of the, the strategies and objectives are designed with that overall goal of getting people into housing. So it's, it's not really, there's not really one silver bullet but I will say that, you know, just having more units would, would ease the problem significantly. Boris, let, let's go back to, I, mean, I think that, you know, Crawford House was about the first time that, that you and I had conversations about the housing first um, model. Um, how successful have we been in trying to sort of switch from just having shelters to trying to get people into, um, into permanent housing? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, one of the things we know is that, um, and and this particular type of housing called permanent supportive housing that Crawford is is um, dedicated to people experiencing chronic homelessness. So it's long term homelessness due to disability. And Housing First is a model that works for people um, across the spectrum. So they they don't necessarily have to be disabled, or you know, it's the whole philosophy of how do we help people get back in homes as quickly as possible. Um, one of the things we know about chronically homeless people, though, uh, related to Crawford, is that their average age of death is about 47 years old, and, and they don't find housing themselves, basically. They basically die on the streets if we don't uh, achieve, you know, we don't intervene. And uh, that's one of the advantages and the values of a place like Crawford is it steps in to help these extremely vulnerable people, often with multiple disabilities, um, something we often call um, trimorbidity where they have a combination of a physical disability or chronic illness, a mental health uh, disorder of some kind and and a substance use um, uh, challenge. And and all those three together are are deadly. And so um, that's the real value of it. And one of the things we've seen, uh, you know, it's not easy work. So I don't want to pretend like it's all, uh, you know, all roses, but um, but uh, we've seen through that that among the things that we've seen is that um, that people do have improved health outcomes. They have, do have improved quality of life. We see a reduction in in, in uh, arrests and in incarcerations over time. We see a, a, a dramatic reduction in emergency room use. So you know improvements in quality of health. So so all those things are factors that really help, and they all you know without a doubt, all help people do better than if they were living on the streets in the, in the woods, the bushes, um, uh, the back alleys, um, storefronts and, and people's backyards and all kinds of things that um, people end up sleeping in when they're, when they're still living in street homelessness. I, I think that, uh, you know, that's such a great point. And I think that a lot of times in our community, the idea of street homelessness is what gets probably the biggest headlines and the most attention, um, the most airtime, because that's what people see. But like 
in Emily's case, Emily, you're working, you have a, a lot of people who have been in homelessness that you're working with who are no longer on the streets. I mean, what, what are some of the demographics of the people that you have? What kind of people are you working with? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point, Bob. So I do think we tend to, uh, when people in general think about homelessness, it, it often is a person who is impacted by chronic homelessness who comes to mind. But we do understand that that is, in fact, a minority of people who are impacted by homelessness. Um, in our community, uh, in a given year, between 35 and 40 percent uh, of people who are impacted by homelessness are families. Uh, and those folks tend to be largely invisible. Uh, and that's for really good reason. Uh, it's because they're trying to fly under the radar. It is, it is considered child abuse or child neglect to be homeless with your children, uh, to be literally homeless, that is, to be living in a car or someplace not intended for human habitation. And so oftentimes those folks uh, want to stay invisible so that their children are not removed from their care. Uh, so that's why it's really important that we have services available uh, because once we're able to bring families into shelter, we're able to go ahead and fully utilize that housing first model that Forrest was talking about. Uh, because it does work, as he said, across the, the spectrum of needs. What Housing First really says is the most important thing we can do for people impacted by homelessness is help them find homes. And that is just as true for families as it is for individuals. So when we can bring them into, into shelter, they don't have to hide anymore. And so those families are able to take advantage of the many services that this very generous community provides. You know, people who've been around the community know that I'm a, I'm a really old guy. So I have to say, I remember the first major series that we at the Herald Times did on homelessness. Uh, if Ann Kibler is listening to this show, she was the reporter. And it was a series that we called The Hidden Homeless. And it was about what you're talking about, Emily, that there were a lot of people that didn't have a permanent place to live, but they were on the street and they were in desperate need of uh, finding more income, finding a place where they could live instead of just somebody's couch. And that was in about 1987, if I remember right. So this is a, a long, long-term issue. Wow. So, um, Mary, in the uh, the plan that you're working on, I, I know, again, there are so many different details in the plan. Um, we've touched on a few of them, you know, already. I hope we'll get to many of them as we go along. But the uh, the idea of providing and having more, as you said, more units, more housing units that people can actually afford to live in. I know that's that's an issue that we've been facing for a long time. In the plan, it looks like there are several different um, uh, suggestions, I guess, that involve incentives to builders and, and uh, other things like that. You know, what can we do to try to address this issue? I know we've tried a lot of things already, but, but what are a couple strategies that you would really favor? Well, I would first note that, um, you know, Bloomington, Monroe County is not alone in, uh, in this. You, you can almost um, open any publication and, and see something written about the struggles that communities face and, and individuals who've, who've um, fallen into homelessness. So we are uh, really trying to look at our own community, but it's in the context of, of a national um, crisis, I would say. Um, and, and the difference really for us now is that we have come together as a community to create this plan, which we've talked about. It's, it is very detailed. Uh, it is uh, funded so that we have people who are dedicated to working on it. And I think we really have community buy-in, which is, is not something that I think we've had broadly in the past. Um, and, and, and as you've pointed out, a lot of these strategies are going to be long-term solutions. For example, um, investment in programs that create long-term affordability, like a land trust or housing trust funds. So that might mean a pool of funding 
that we could access when um, a, a, an apartment complex comes on the market to buy and stabilize those rents so the complex is not um, renovated with increased rents or um, torn down with something built that's more expensive. Um, we can also look at how we can exp expand um, public housing authority resources, so project-based vouchers in new developments so that people can access those vouchers that will help um, offset the cost of their rent. Landlords are going to be an extremely important partner um, in, in this effort. And so we're going to be develop, developing stronger relationships with landlords, listening to what their concerns are, working with them. Um, they're part of this community, those that are based here. And that's, that's just really an important um, partner that, that we're going to need in, in this effort. And it's not just in Monroe County either. We're really looking at um, the surrounding counties as well. This is uh, not a problem that's, that's unique to us. And we really do rely on that regional approach to make it successful. All right. We've been joined now by Kelsey Shields, Director of Operations for Robin and Trisha's House. Thanks for joining us, Kelsey. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk about what Robin and Trisha's house is and uh, what your mission is. Thank you for having me. Um, so basically, Robin and Trisha's house is a low barrier um, transitional house. Um, we offer um, rooms. It's kind of like um, if you think of a group home in a way. Um, there's 10 rooms, kitchens, bathrooms, laundry. Um, we house 10 men at a time and we just kind of give them the resources and the help, the support that they need um, to be able to, you know, get their lives back in order or just if they need that extra help, you know, we kind of, we try to just be that shoulder they can lean on. And where are you located? So our address is 1860 South Walnut, right behind um, Big Red Liquors. Okay. We're talking with a variety of people who are involved in, in homelessness issues uh, today mm -hmm. on Noon Edition. We have Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director of Beacon Incorporated, Mary Morgan, Housing Security Director for United Way of Monroe County. Emily Pike is executive director of New Hope for Families, and that was Kelsey Shields, director of operations for Robin and Trisha's house. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have had a note uh, on Twitter that I just want to throw out there and get Forrest, you can respond to this first. And then Mary, you would probably be great with your history with the chamber as well. Uh, the, the comment is, sorry to say, but the overall housing issue relies on the lack of higher paying jobs in Bloomington, such as at IU, to support the cost of housing in the county. If you fix your low paying job problem in the county, you will see a huge improvement on the housing issue. Forrest, true. I mean, certainly income uh, is is a big factor in what's affordable. And so um, and, you know, uh, what the person's saying is is a huge uh, task that that uh, that I think not only requires local investment, but but national investment. And we haven't seen the political will to make the significant changes. I think we need to um, kind of even the economic um equality of our country so that so that people at the lower end of the spectrum are making more. Um, but also I'll say that housing is a is a complicated um, issue and, and housing is uh, and homelessness is a complicated issue and, and while income is a significant factor in that it's not the only factor in what leads to people experiencing homelessness. And so uh, that's one of the, the challenges. And also, I think what one of the things that makes homelessness so interesting uh, in a way uh, is uh, that's a little uh, it's it's awful, but but it's interesting in that there are so many things that overlap with it um, that uh, just make it a very um, kind of comprehensive look at what's going on and the challenges we have going on from you know, poverty, of course, and affordable housing, of course, 
but also uh, mental illness and substance use um, challenges, like Emily mentioned, with childcare, um, uh, domestic violence, um, emergencies like fires and floods and things like that, and tornadoes that can can uh, uh, you know upset uh, people um, and offset racism it has a significant connection to homelessness, and and um, and and on and on. So. Um, there are so many complicating factors that, that, that involve homelessness, but certainly if we were able to raise the uh, standard wage uh, uh, for folks, that would definitely improve um, the situation. Let's go to Emily next, and then I'll, I'll get Mary's take on this. Emily? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. I agree with everything that Forrest just says, and I also agree with the commenter. Uh, but I did want to say really, really quickly that when we think about homelessness and we look, you know, Mary pointed out earlier that this is not a problem unique to Bloomington. It's not a problem unique to Monroe County. Uh, we are seeing this across the nation. And when you look at it, look at a map that shows the concentrations and the, and the prevalence of homelessness, uh, what we see is that that maps almost directly uh, onto a map that would show places where housing affordability is out of control. Uh, and what we do not see is that it necessarily is homelessness is necessarily more prevalent in places where people make less money. Uh, so, so while income is absolutely a factor, as are all of the other things that Forrest said, uh, I think it's really important to notice that housing affordability is, is one of the strongest indicators that we have of where homelessness will be a problem. Mary, from your, uh, your, your background with the Chamber and your new role with United Way, could you uh, comment on this? Sure, and I would uh, agree with Emily and Forrest in that it, it's really a complicated factor, and income is certainly part of that, but it's not the, uh, I don't think you can make a blanket statement that, oh, if businesses only raised uh, their uh, the, the wages, that that, that would solve um the problem of, of housing insecurity. Um, that said, uh, the Heading Home Plan does address uh, the need for partnerships with businesses, basically working with the business community to um, uh, help people either get employment uh, or um, you know, get, get better jobs than, than what they have currently. Um, looking at how we can connect people to well-paying jobs and, and provide supports that they require for, for employment. And I will say one of that is transportation. Um, there are a lot of barriers to transportation for people who are um, in very low income categories. And uh, we, we don't necessarily do a great job of that in this community um, for a variety of reasons. So there are things that we can do working with the business community, but again, it is a, a, a very complicated, multifaceted issue. I want to add that um, the commenter sent us a follow-up note that, that uh, really takes aim at IU and says, in short, matching job wages more in line with the cost of housing. It's way off balance in Monroe County. As soon as IU pays more accordingly, the rest of the county will do so too. Um, yeah, I think I'll just leave it there as a comment by that person. Um, Kelsey, how are the, uh, the men who you are working with affected by wages? How does, does it affect their ability to get um, an apartment? So basically, I mean, it, it makes it really tough just because um, a lot of the guys that we are helping were either homeless and trying to get back on their feet or they're coming straight from prison or jail and have nothing so, you know, we're talking about them being able to save money while living, and it's just, it's almost impossible. I mean, it's just, they're not making enough to take care of their day-to-day -day needs that they have, essentially, um, you know, just those necessities that you need daily, and then, you know, we're asking them to save money and be able to afford apartments that, even working class people can't afford. 
I, I think uh, Forrest, you've said on this program before that, that uh, you know, we talk about affordable housing, you know, there are standards that where the government might say, well, this is affordable housing. But in fact, for a lot of people, you know, paying zero to uh, what, $100 a month is, is all they can afford. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and we, we, we're showing a particular lack of housing in the zero to 400 rent range per month. Um, and that's, we actually have a pretty decent portfolio of affordable housing um, in the 400 to 800 rent, rent per month, give or take. But it's that really low zero to 400 where we see um, the biggest challenge in, uh, in our community. And that's, of course, many people are experiencing homelessness or in that, in that level. And, and so, you know, so that's the, the challenge and you're not going to really get a market solution to that problem. Uh, that, that's, um, that's a level of, of rent that's so small that it needs uh, intervention. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one stat that really, uh, you know, kind of speaks to that very heavily is um, housing choice vouchers, sometimes known as Section 8, um, are, are probably the single most uh, powerful um, asset as a country that we have that we use to help people uh, move into housing and be successful for people experiencing poverty uh, into housing. And, um, and about only about 20% of people eligible for a housing choice voucher actually get one. So 80% of people are actually eligible, impoverished enough that they they should be able to get, get a voucher actually can, can get one or can't get one. So, um, so that, that's a pretty startling statistic. And I think a big part of what's going on uh, nationally and locally. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before here is the, 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 when the winter comes, there are, it seems like there are, even additional needs and additional problems for people who are experiencing homelessness. Last year, um, Beacon opened an emergency low barrier shelter for those who were experiencing homelessness. As I understand it, that shelter is not going to be happening this year. What kind of prospects are there for people who are, you know, people who are in that street homeless population during this winter? Are they, are they, are they more at risk than they've ever been before? Yeah, that's a that's an incredibly uh, difficult and painful question and conversation. One of the things that we lost some years ago when um, Interfaith Winter Shelter uh, merged into uh, Wheeler and Wheeler became a, a year-round shelter is we lost that kind of add-on of emergency beds during the winter, um, which I, I personally think is is really really important uh, to help keep people safe. The number of people experiencing street homelessness is lower than a year ago, and so I'm re- very grateful for that. And um, so far, we've had a relatively mild winter, but we still have a quite quite a ways to go here. But um, shelter is uh, is is extremely difficult to um, to get past all the local codes and state codes. Um, uh, and so we were lucky last year in some ways because of the um, the um, COVID to the state of emergency allowed us to kind of, some of the codes were waived uh, temporarily. Um, but with the, uh, but that's a, 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 um, a potentially could be removed at any point now as the um, state assembly looks at uh, removing the state of emergency, they're in negotiation with the governor. So that was the value of interfaith is they rotated uh, from month to month. So they didn't have to meet some of those requirements uh, because they had a minimum less than 30 days a year being shelter, but when you go over 30 days, all these other occupancy codes kick in. And, and that's why it's so hard to build shelter and have shelter locally. Before I get away from this emergency uh, shelter issue for us, I want, we had a couple of questions come into our city limits project about um, the hospital property and even the parking garage and whether those places could be used temporarily, maybe even just for this winter for shelter. Have you heard any kind of plans for that? Or is it, is it a good idea or a bad idea? And anytime you can pe- keep people safe in dangerous weather, that's a good idea. Um, I'm not currently aware of, I believe the city currently possesses that property, um, whether they have any inclination to 
to allow its use in that way. So that would be a question that I think needs to be directed more towards the city um, and their their ownership stakes there. But I, I do want to say something kind of uh, that I think is really important too, is I think when we focus on homelessness, a lot of times we get very crisis oriented and it is a crisis and we need to think of that. But sometimes when we get crisis oriented, we think very short term and we think very immediate. And sometimes I think that leads us to bad, making some bad decisions as a community. I am a strong believer that we will not shelter our way out of this problem, the homeless problem. Uh, we're, we're just not going to be able to do it. Uh, and if we keep using shelter as the response every time we have a problem, uh, we'll continue to have more people sheltered without dealing with the real problem, which is trying to help people get housed. That's the, you know, the bottleneck in the system in our community is, is the housing. And until we deal with that fundamental problem, um, sheltering will just continue to make uh, that worse. And we'll take on more and more people throughout the state, uh, you know, and their homelessness and take them into shelter without dealing with the real problem, which is that people need to be, uh, excuse the term, not warehoused, but, but moved into homes where they can have a better quality of life. We have about 15 minutes to go in the program today. So if you have questions or comments for Forrest Gilmore, the executive director of Beacon Incorporated, Mary Morgan, the housing security director for United Way of Monroe County, Emily Pike, the executive director of New Hope for Families, or Kelsey Shields, director of operations for Robin and Trisha's house, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and send us questions there to at noon edition. So we can't shelter our way out of this issue. And it seems to me, Mary Morgan, that the program that you're uh, really watching over now, the Heading Home program is a regional plan that's trying to look at long-term solutions to, uh, to these issues. So how are you going to measure um, success and how are you going to go about um, you know, being able to you know, work on individual problems when there's, there's so much in that plan? How, what kind of strategy are you going to have to try to address you know, individual issues one at a time? Right. I um, completely agree with Forrest that uh, we, one of the reasons why this, this Heading Home initiative was started was because we realized as a community that these strategies uh, are long-term, they're heavy lifts, they involve uh, not just uh, shelter organizations or people who are um, providing emergency services, but they involve the entire community. And so uh, that that's, you know, also something that we're just going to have to chip away at. This is not something that's going to be a year or even two year um, project. And uh, it's one of the reasons why the community foundation is working to build an endowment that can sustain this work um, over a period of years. And, and we're thankful to Monroe County for contributing um, to that endowment. Uh, I, I don't think that, um, you know, if you look at the heading home plan, there are lots of um, strategic strategies that, that, will not happen um, in the short term, but we're trying to start by laying the foundation um, to, to build towards achieving those strategies. I, I am the first hire, uh, first you know, physical person whose full-time job is to execute this plan. Right now we're hiring an assistant director. Um, you can get more information about that at monroeunitedway.org housing. Uh, we're doing things um, like uh, we'll be naming the initiative. First of all, it, we've, we've been calling it Heading Home, but uh, we're going to be finding a different name for that, building a website. Uh, you ask about measurements. We are going to have a dashboard that will, um, as, as frequently as possible, provide data for the community that we can track over time. There was a specific subcommittee uh, over the past year called a data and dashboard that has a list of recommendations for the kinds of things that should be um, tracked. So we'll be working with that. And so just really initially laying some, some groundwork uh, for our foundation on, on which to build uh, the rest of the, the work. The way I would sort of characterize this work um, Mary and, and Forrest and Emily and Kelsey, all of you, 
is that it's it's got to be almost a cultural shift. I mean, you talk about uh, in this report, it's about um, making sure the homelessness is rare, it's brief, and it's non non repeating. So it's got to be kind of a culture shift, Emily. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Bob. And you know, um, having had the privilege to to work with Mary and with Forrest on this, uh, I think part of what we need is a shift in our mindset about what success looks like. I think for a long time, agencies like mine, agencies like Forrest, uh, Forrest's agency and, and agencies like Kelsey's, the, uh, the goal has been to get people into the shelter beds. Um, but the truth is that is not success. And in fact, that is in many ways a symptom of a failure in a different place. What success is, is getting people out of shelter beds and into homes. And I think that's what Mary was saying. Uh, in the long term, what that requires is for us as a community to be willing to invest more to make sure people can get out of homelessness rather than just maintaining those shelter beds. Where do some of those investments come in? Where, where would you, if you had uh, your magic wand, Emily, where would you be investing? Yeah, so I think Mary made some great points about investing in more affordable housing opportunities. I think that's a top priority. The other thing that we need to do a better job of is investing in the professionals who do this work. So we understand that helping individuals and families move through homelessness into lasting stability does take help and it does take support and it does take guidance. Uh, And those are often things that are more difficult to get funding for. Uh, But those professionals, those social workers who are on the front lines and often very underpaid uh, are the people who are doing that work to move people through and helping them build their own plans for getting there and staying there. So those two things to me feel like uh, high priorities. Yeah, we could do a whole show on, you know, direct support professionals and what they're paid and what they're expected to do. But we're not talking about exactly that. Today, we've had uh, some questions come in um, to our website. One is, says, we have four representatives of housing here. How do you all work together or communicate on such a complicated issue? Forrest, you've been at this the longest, I think. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, um, uh, trying to improve that all the time, I think, Um, one of the most important things I think we do as a community is something called coordinated entry. And uh, we have, uh, as we have uh, um, biweekly meetings where many of the housing providers and shelter providers and homeless providers in our community um, get together and look at a common list, a prioritization list of people experiencing homelessness, and then help those folks and talk about those folks and help prioritize those resources to the people who need them the most and that they fit the most. And that's probably one of the most powerful ways, I think, right now as a community that we're collaborating. Of course, we've collaborated pretty heavily through the South Central Housing Network and through the Heading Home Plan and and working uh, that way. But on the ground, day to day, um, that coordinated entry uh, committee is uh, doing a lot of great work. I believe that was mentioned or something along those lines is mentioned. uh, And I see Mary's going to jump in on the conversation in the plan about how if somebody has an issue and needs help that any agency they go to can find them some sense of help and they don't have to just get shuffled around from one place to another. Mary. Um, Well, I think that that Forrest and and Emily and Kelsey can speak to the um, coordination among service providers, which I I think, you know, as as Forrest said, it's, it's happening uh, and they're constantly looking for ways, you know, to, to make that um, stronger. But I also think that it's part of my job um, going forward to really make sure that communication and collaboration happens um, in, in different sectors of the community. I've mentioned landlords. Um, I've mentioned transportation. I think our elected officials and some public policy issues have to be part of it. So it's, it's really going to require more collaboration and coordination uh, than we've seen in the past. And, and part of what um, the initiative that I'm um, helping with will do uh, is, is to facilitate that coordination. 
And Mary, I, I know mental health is mentioned in the in the plan as well, because mental health is another one of those issues that do that that does um, keep people in homelessness or, or at least make it difficult for people to find stable housing. How does the plan address that? Um, sure, that's an important um, aspect. And, and I think Forrest and Emily have, have spoken to that. Um, the, the plan, uh, part of the strategy includes um, expanding supports uh, for people who have substance abuse disorder and, and mental health um, uh, disorders, the resources at the Stride Center, um, you know, we need to figure out a more effective way to deploy those resources. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think healthcare, the healthcare system in general uh, is going to need to be an important partner in all of this. All right, thanks. Kelsey, we've had a question come in for you that says, yes. how do you manage the wait list for Robin and Trish's? Are there any of the men um, there... Uh, who have been, you know, living in hotels? Um, so currently, none of our residents now were in hotels. Um, they've come straight from prison or jail. Um, two of our guys have been with us for about three months now, and I've only been with the organization for about three months. So I can't speak to before that, but the way that we do the list is... Um, you would email us um, or message us on Facebook um, or do the application on the H4H website. And from there, um, it's usually myself that responds. Um, I'll ask more information as far as age, um, name, any medical conditions. You know, we obviously try to get medical conditions off the street first or, you know, whatever their situation is. Um, so we kind of work in that order, but aside from that, it's kind of a first come first serve. You know, we have, um, spreadsheets that have when they contacted us in the day and we just kind of work in that order. Yeah, I want to acknowledge, Kelsey, the, the work that you do, because, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times that some of your guys have come straight from prison. And mm -hmm. I would think that that would be a particularly difficult uh, transition for a lot of people to make. So, you know, kudos for working with that population of people who are they're, they're getting out um, after serving their time and they need a place to live. Thank you. And it's it's for me, it's a really rewarding thing. A lot of people don't realize we are all volunteers. None of us get paid. So for myself, like I actually work a full-time job and then still do this maybe 50 to 60 hours a week. And it's at this point, it's just about the reward of helping somebody else. It's kind of, we go by that pay it forward motto. You know, we don't ask for anything in return. We just ask that you return the favor to somebody else. Okay. We have just about three minutes to go. We have a, a question from our good friend, Charlotte Zitlow. I'm going to ask this of uh, probably Emily and Forrest to, to go first on this, but uh, Charlotte's question is what role does IU have to play here? What about student housing? She, said, she says there are so many apartments being built and they're way too expensive for most people. She says anybody. I'm editing her to say most people, almost all people. IU has to be considered part of the problem as well as part of the solution. It's not so much a question as a comment. Uh, Emily, you want to respond? Yeah, well, thanks to our friend Charlotte for that comment. Uh, I, yeah, student housing is a really complicated part of this, right? Uh, we understand that our friends at IU uh, want to expand their student population. We understand that students have you know a certain sort of apartment that they would like to live in. We also know that many students aren't paying for that out of their pockets in the same way working individuals or families are. Uh, and so it does create a burden on the rest of the market. Uh, I don't know what the solution is, but I know that we can certainly be more collaborative with the university uh, 
and see if we can't come up with some solutions that are that are student housing on campus. One of the things that happens is that when we build more and more student housing downtown, uh, it pushes the other housing options outside of city limits. And as Mary said, transportation is a tremendous issue for many people impacted by homelessness or housing insecurity. Uh, the people served at New Hope, about 20% of them have access to a car. And that's only if you define car in the most generous way you can think of. Um, so when we think about that, pushing the accessible low income housing out into the county actually makes it less accessible because people can't physically get there. Uh, so we certainly need to be more collaborative and come up with a solution that can work for both sides. Mary, you uh, can you sort of finish us up here? We've got about a minute <laughs> and a half to go. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to point out that um, the state legislature, there's a bill um, in the state house that would create a study committee to um, look at student hunger and homelessness, specifically in um, Indiana universities. So universities throughout the state. So I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but I think that that's, it's recognized that that's an issue. Um, and uh and yeah, you know, it's it's one of many. I appreciate Charlotte raising that because uh, IU does have a big impact. All right. Well, we are out of time. Um, I want to thank all of you because you're really on the front lines of this issue. It's been a it's a long, difficult, complicated issue. And I know, uh, you know, Rev, the Reverend Forrest Gilmore, thank you for being here with us. We've talked many times before. Uh, it's hard to come up with solutions, but it, we're always trying. So I appreciate that. Mary Morgan, good luck in your new job. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah. Kelsey, good luck with your new organization. And and Emily Pike, you've got Thank a lot you. going on with your group. And, you know, good luck to you with all the different things you've got going on. Thanks, Bob. All right. So I want to thank... Um, all of my help today are producers, Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire. For Engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation. Improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.